Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to this Friday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB's Lawmakers, in for Bill Nygut. It's Friday morning at the end of a long news week, one marked by tributes to Jimmy Carter. Nearly a week ago, his family announced that he had entered hospice care at home. We're joined this week by today by journalists from around the state. GPB's own editor and reporter, Grant Blankenship, joins us from Macon. How are you, Grant? You're back from Plains covering the news about the former president. I am. Yeah, that was an interesting trip earlier in the week uh, back in Macon, but happy to be here today. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks. We may hear more from you later on about that. And we're also joined by Maya Prabhu, who is the government reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I see her at the Capitol every day. And Maya, given the news on the former president, what's the mood been like at the legislature uh, this week? How would you describe it? I think people are just cautious. You know, they're sad, but worry that it may be premature and with hospice care, you know, it could be days or it could be months. So everybody's just biding their time. Yeah. That first day um, that they were back, there were a lot of people talked on the floor of the chambers of the the various chambers. But yeah, I think everybody's just kind of in a wait and see mode. Thanks for being with us. Uh, We're also joined by Margaret Coker, editor in chief uh, at The Current covering coastal Georgia. Thanks for being here, Margaret. Yeah, excited to be back. Um, It's springtime here in Savannah. The pollen is falling from the trees, but it's also the best time to be here. Lots of cultural events happening over the next month or so. Yeah, well, it's good that the the cultural events, the pollen, no. Um, But we'll we'll fight through it like we do every year. Uh, And finally, we're joined by Martin Matheny. He's programming director at WUGA in Athens. Thanks for joining us, Martin. Glad to be here. Hello from Athens. So I, I love this, that you guys from all over the state, and we can talk about a lot of things, and we're going to get really into housing to begin with. Um, you're, we'll be talking about issues that people are facing all over the place, and some of the things we'll t- discuss will involve how the legislature is dealing with it. So, Grant, I'd like to go to you first. You covered the Housing First programs in Columbus, something I'd never heard of before, aimed at placing people in homes rather than in homeless shelters. And so tell us a little bit about that. Right. Yeah. So this is sort of, uh, I guess, the cutting edge or the, the, the operating procedure that HUD prefers when it comes to helping homeless folks these days. And what it really boils down to is whatever else you can say uh, that someone who doesn't have housing, what, what they're dealing with, whatever array of problems they have, those come second to the project of just getting someone in a home, getting them a roof first, and then you know whatever else there is to do, like finding somebody a job or helping them with their, their substance abuse issues or mental health issues, those can be tackled after 
the roof, right? And so in cities across Georgia, this is what's happening. So Atlanta, uh, Partners for Home uh, is the organization in Atlanta that's pursuing this housing first model. In Columbus, as you described, um, they're, they're having a lot of success with housing first there. Um, it's it's the way that cities across the country are really going after this. Most notably, um, Seattle and Houston are seeing some real, real um, successes using this housing first idea. Yeah, it's like a um, different mindset about how to take care of the homeless population. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I think, you know, our our knee jerk solution when you just right out of the gate even even as i've been steeping myself in this housing first idea it's hard to get over this reflex to say well you should do xyz first right before before we talk about housing but um really it's it works in in atlanta they say they've seen a 30 percent reduction in street homelessness in i think since 2019 uh through this approach um it's difficult there's lots of uh, structural uh, challenges to it, like first finding the housing that you're going to put people into is increasingly an issue, um, just as it is for anyone looking for affordable housing these days. Uh, but it seems to be a pretty effective way to to keep people off the street. Yeah. I, the whole idea of the you have to be in have certain things in place before you actually get a roof over your head, which is essential. Um, I'm, I'm so, so glad that they're finally realizing that that that's the most important thing. Uh, and, you, and you visited a campfire fire benefit for a local homeless um, outreach effort where people were staying out overnight. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So uh, the Daybreak Center here in Macon is um, sort of a day center for the homeless. So in a traditional shelter, you have to leave probably 8 a.m. and then you can come back later in the evening. In the middle of the day, what do you do? Uh, Daybreak's been around for a while to give people that place to go in the middle of the day. And it's a place where you can get medical care, food, a shower. Um, So they have this camp out where people are invited to um, be homeless for a night. Uh, by way of fundraising. Actually, we have um, yeah, some... Yeah, so I ran out there this morning. Okay, yeah. we've actually got we some, some sound from, from you. Yeah, you. let's play that for yeah. and get then get your reaction. I think providing low-cost housing is, is an important first step because uh, if you're on the streets and you, you don't have uh, a good job or any job, it's uh, housing is a basic need. Um, I think that the food pantries and, and, and kitchens are great. Uh, but a person's own kitchen is better. And so uh, certainly low-cost housing would be one thing that I would think that it would be wise to invest in. Yeah, she definitely gets it, Grant. Yeah, that that was not an uncommon sentiment in the handful of people I was able to talk to as they were packing up their tents this morning, that, that you know, a roof is important. But then there's also this issue of mental health care. That came up a lot as well, that... Um, if you had to pick a, a spot where people apparently really need the most help besides a roof, it's it's in getting these long unaddressed issues, like getting some attention to them um, and getting people sort of stable, you know, um, which is a, a whole other issue, I suppose. Yeah. OK, we're going to move on and, and go up to Athens. So, Martin, you recently reported that Athens is receiving two and a half million dollars in federal funds to address homelessness. So tell us a little bit about that money and where it's going. Sure. Yeah, this is from a program called Home ARP. It's administered by Housing and Urban Development Federal Agency. Um, a little over, it's two and a half million dollars, and a little over half the amount is going to create new rental housing in Athens. The bad news associated with that is one point three million dollars really only buys you five to ten rental units, which is 
kind of a drop in the bucket. Um, another $625,000 is going to address sort of those other needs that uh, that Grant just talked about, things like job placement, counseling, mental health, housing placement, and then another quarter million to capacity building with existing nonprofits. This isn't the this isn't the only uh, affordable housing money that Athens Clark County is getting. They've gotten millions of dollars in just kind of straight down the line American Rescue Plan funding, uh, which they've been using for a variety of purposes, including making up some increased construction costs for a large development north of downtown Athens. Wow. I, I love that we're moving around the state. Let's get to Atlanta. And Maya, I'd like to take it to the legislature for a second. Senator Cardin Summers is sponsoring Senate Bill 62, which would designate areas and cities and counties for homeless camps. So tell us more about that bill and what impact it would have on local governments. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, it's a, an extremely pared down version of a legislation that he introduced last year um, that turned into a study committee where folks met in the interim between sessions and talked about the best ways and best practices to um, address homelessness. And so this would um, have a state auditor examine how Georgia is spending public money to reduce homelessness and allow the state, like you said, to designate camping areas for homeless people. Um, you know, advocates are opposing the bill. Um, mostly because they say there were things that would help people living um, in homelessness uh, that were recommended by the committee and didn't end up in the legislation, like raising the state's minimum wage, which, you know, is going to be a tough thing to do in Georgia or giving free state ID cards to folks who are are homeless. Yeah. So the, the whole idea that the state would designate certain areas is probably not going to appeal to everyone who um, who, as I understand it from some of the homeless, the people who work with the homeless, they kind of like to pick their own places uh, when it comes to certain things. Um, and, and I I know, Grant, you've you've done a little bit on this like they have their they 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 don't want to be put sheltered. They don't want to be put in a box in a sense. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these folks are people who have had uh, institu institutionalized experiences, right? Uh, they've been incarcerated, um, which can leave you pretty uh, antipathetic to the idea of, of group shelters again. Right. Um, and so, yeah, they, people do like their freedom. And, and often when you ask people where they want to be, um, it's either outside where they are, or in a place of their own. And these, these interim um, steps of like group shelters, congregate shelters, they tend not to be super popular with, with street homeless folks um, for that reason. Um, Martin has some experience in Athens with a, with a tent shelter already, right? I mean, there's, you, there's a place where we've been kicking the tires on this idea of, a, of a, an official tent shelter already. Yeah, talk about yeah, that, Martin. Is, uh, yeah, it's a it's a sanctioned homeless encampment. It's administered by a group called uh, First Steps. That's the name of the of the project, and it's been uh, open for gosh, just about a year. I think that they opened on St. Patrick's Day last year. Um, seems to be functioning fairly well. One of the big issues right now is capacity. Um, the latest data that we have here in in Athens. 
uh, from a point in time survey of homelessness um, is about a year old as well. So it was a snapshot for about a month before the shelter opened. 283 people experiencing homelessness on one given night in February last year, 74 of them unsheltered. So there's still a need for more room. And then on top of that, uh, the housing issue here, as, as it is across the state, is not just people who are unhoused. It's people who are in danger of losing their homes, people at 30 percent, 60 percent of the area median income who are really kind of on thin ice. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that a, a little bit more. But, Margaret, I want to get to you. A slightly different note. The Current's been doing a long, really great investigation with ProPublica on predatory title lending, which you can find. Uh, you've learned it hits the poorest Georgians. And so tell us a, a little bit about that investigation. Yeah, well, there actually is a segue because we're talking a lot about vulnerable Georgians who, um, contrary to some popular belief, aren't helpless, who actually can work, who just can't make ends meet. So um, for your listeners trying to, to dissect a, a complicated financial product, you know, for um, people who don't have stellar credit and who still need financing or, sh or money uh, loan in order to make ends meet at the end of the month, there are, um, is a certain niche of financial lending product called a title loan. And what happens is that um, a working family or a person who has their own car can go into um, a title lender. Um, the big brand name is our very own Savannah-based Title Max. You hand over the title to your car and they give you cash in exchange. And the, it's a it's a lending contract. You're supposed to pay it back. But there's this loophole in Georgia law, unlike any other place in America, where Title Max and other title lenders are allowed legally to charge triple digit interest rates to customers. And those are rates that would be illegal for any other financial services company in the state um, to offer. It's a law that was passed um, for the title lending industry back in the early 2000s. And over the last 18 years, there's been a lot of legislators who see this as immoral because it creates debt traps for tens of thousands of Georgians every year. But nobody's been able to crack the nut and actually get the law modified to bring title lenders under an entire um, other array of, of legal um, regulations that do exist here in Georgia. And so we um, at The Current and at ProPublica, we've been digging into this homegrown industry. TitleMax is the nation's largest title lender. It's a billion dollar business. There's another, uh, what the top the top three title lenders in, in the U.S. are actually based in Georgia. So guess what? They've got um, powerful lobbies and powerful friends um, in, in the state house. But what we've been able to do with our reporting this year is really show the scope and the scale of the industry. We've been able to, to um, all of these companies are private. There's no public information. Um, we've been able to uncover that for the last three years, there have been 75,000 Georgians a year who have to go to title lenders and have title loans as a result. These are people who... Um, who exist in basically all of our counties. You know, it's not a blue county, red co county phenomenon. It's a it's a problem faced by working Georgians, working poor Georgians, who are, um, as Martin was saying, the people trying to struggling struggling to make ends meet every month. And so, interestingly enough, uh, you know, for the last um, three four sessions of the legislature this season as well, the Republican Republican um, congressmen who uh, who are 
um, authoring and, and trying to push reform legislation that would bring the title lending industry, again, back under the umbrella of financial regulation that already exists in Georgia. And so um, in this session, there has been a bill introduced on the House side by um, a, a, a Republican co um, congressman, a representative from Fayetteville, um, Representative Josh Bonner. He's the chairman of the Military and Veterans Committee on the House side. He, For him, he sees this bill, and he's got six co-sponsors, all Republicans, who sort of see this bill as something that is urgent to protect hardworking Georgians, again, um, just to just to bring this, this industry in line with standard practice instead of being able to operate in this loophole. Again, these are not small mom and pop shops. They're very big companies. Title Max itself is worth about a billion dollars. It's amazing when you say that three of the largest are in the state of Georgia. And it, it um, it's interesting how how they may have cropped up over the years. What what about Georgia caused them to to settle here? Do you have any idea? Well, their base, the, you know, their the, their founders and chairman are, are Georgians and were based here, and 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 the businesses grew up out of a sort of a. A, a very dynamic time in the early 2000s when financial services industries were, were really kind of diversifying and growing and and different kinds of companies were trying to capture different parts of the market. You know, there's the grade A corporate uh, uh, good credit market, and then there's the rest of us. And so Georgia had this very, um, very bright, shining, progressive moment where we actually cracked down on a certain segment of predatory lenders, and those were payday lenders, people who would give you money um, when you still when you hadn't gotten paid, but were expecting to get paid. And with the crackdown and the prohibition against payday lenders, this whole new segment of the industry rose up, and um, that's the title loan, title pawn dealers, as they're known here in Georgia. So yeah, um, homegrown Georgian entrepreneurs who captured um, a part of part of a really urgent and growing part of the market because, as we all know, our neighbors are struggling to get by these days, and um, and and so yes, they they're able to charge upwards under Georgia law of 180 percent annual interest rate to people who are just need five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars to get by to pay their medical bills, um, to pay for their medications, to pay for um, proper, back property taxes on their mother's home. You know, these are, again, most of the target customers are people who have jobs or who people who are in fixed incomes, um, elderly, retired people. In our stories, we, you know, profiled um, people, um, mostly through South Georgia, um, a, a retired uh, African-American couple here in Savannah um, who needed help paying medical bills and got into this debt trap with Title Max. Um, people in Columbus, Georgia, again, you know, you're, you're, it's not that people are going out to buy Rolex watches or iPhones. They just need help paying their monthly bills. And because of this loophole um, and because of the confusing way in which um, the Title Max managers are selling these products, you know, if you're, it's, it's, it's hard to understand that you're actually going to be paying upwards of 180% when you're, it, the loan is being sold to you at 9% monthly rates or 10% monthly rates. That monthly part is the key issue, and that generally gets uh, you know, minimized in terms of the hard sell being done at storefronts. Over 200 storefronts Title Max has across across Georgia. Yeah, it's really it's really heartbreaking the stories that you've been able to tell and uh, tell people where they can see those reports. Right. So, um, of course, uh, at the Current, you can find us online at 
thecurrentga.org because we're a nonprofit news organization. We have an entire page set up for the series that we've written. I will say in the breaking news department, we just learned that there's a there's a federal regulatory body called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They um, just late last night uh, have announced that they are fining Title Max $15 million for violations of federal consumer laws. And among those violations is that Title Max was illegally selling title loans to military families and, and, and military servicemen and women. There's a federal law that, that puts a cap on any financial services product um, given or sold to military members, the, cap, the interest rate cap for that is 36%. And the Defense Department about 10 years ago decided that military, military members needed protection from predatory lenders because it was a national security emergency that so many of our servicemen and women were going into debt. So this federal law protects military servicemen and women. And again, you know, back here to the state, um, Representative Bonner, who again is the the chairman of the House uh, Military and Veterans Committee, says, you know, if there are regulations in place to help some Georgians, our servicemen and women, all those regulations should be available for Georgia consumers. And that's the kind of pragmatic regulation that he's trying to bring to the to this homegrown title lending industry. But the fact that that Title Max has been um, caught out in selling those loans to military servicemen and women is is it's pretty shocking. Yeah, it'll bring a lot of attention to what's going on. So we'll keep an eye on House Bill 342, Representative Bonner's bill. I want to get back to you, Maya, on uh, Cardin's bill, uh, Cardin Summers bill dealing with the homeless camps. Uh, how does that how does that look right now in terms of um, sponsors, co-sponsors and what we might see with that? Um, yeah, I, you know, I think. The effort last year kind of made some of the folks in his caucus pause, which I think is what led to him getting a study committee out of that. I think that there is possibility that, you know, this bill will get some traction, especially in the Senate. It, I mean, I feel like most things get out of the Senate. Um, most Republican sponsored bills um, get out of the Senate. And so the question will just be, what happens once it makes it over to the House side? Because, you know, we're still waiting to see how, you know, our new speaker, John Burns, is going to handle some of these more, you know, uh, polarizing or, or you know, hot potato issues, like we call them at the at the AJC. So that remains to be seen. But um, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it if it makes it out of the Senate. Yeah. So so that we've had the, the Senate hearing on it. So we'll just have to we'll have to see. Did you mention? Yeah, you mentioned the Senate hearing on it. Local governments, I'm sure, had a lot to say. Yeah, so um, my colleague, um, Catherine Landrigan, actually covered that. And, you know, there were folks from um, at Doug Shipman from Atlanta City Council was there and, you know, just said, you know, we're facing a lack of housing. We're working on it ourselves. Partners for Home, which is an agency in Atlanta um, that works with homeless people, is working to, you know, shelter people, um, like Grant was saying, is happening and, you know, other parts of the state as well. Um, so, you know, folks are just kind of like, we're, we're, we're working on it, we're handling it, and um, we don't necessarily need the state to step in and inter intervene. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on that. I love hearing um, all the work that you as journalists are doing across the state, and we're going to hear some more, but we need to hit our first break right here. 
Stay with us. We'll be back with more Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lauria, in for Bill Nygut, and today I'm joined by Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Maya Prabhu, WUGA's Martin Matheny, the current's Margaret Coker, and GPB's own Grant Blankenship. And I just want to add, Margaret, that that, uh, senior producer Natalie Mendenhall has told me that they've taken your uh, stories on um, on the predatory lending and put it on Twitter. So people can go there right now and uh, read those stories. I think it's fascinating and something we should all know about. So thanks for your good reporting. Uh, so yesterday, our panel broke down the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's series, American Dream for Rent, on why Metro Atlanta homes have become unaffordable for so many Georgians. At Georgians as, and then they noted that the issue is spreading across the st- state. And Grant, you published a story on unresponsive landlords and rundown apartments in Macon. So tell us about your experience covering a story like that. Well, uh yeah, there, we've had two pretty high-profile instances of that in Macon in the last uh, six years. Uh, places that were found to be unfit for human habitation, which meant that there were mass evictions, emergency efforts mounted to find people new places to live, and uh, you know, so people own those apartment complexes. <laughs> like there are landlords. Um, sometimes they hide behind uh, LLCs, these kind of uh, legal arrangements to protect assets, but you can find them. But the problem is uh, when they're finally kind of brought to heel, the penalties are almost nothing. Uh, $20,000 was the fine for the the largest of these landlords here at a place called Crystal Lakes in Macon a couple of years ago, which amounted to maybe like a week of the rent um, or a month of the rent. A very, you know, a, a, a little bit of what of what he might have taken in the years that he owned the place uh, from tenants. Uh, so sort of a slap on the wrist. Um, so the long and the short of it is, Renters uh, don't really have much leverage when they find themselves in a place unfit for human habitation to get any relief from a landlord. And, yeah, it's it's hard to know where we go from that. No leverage and living in really horrible, unimaginable conditions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, unfit for human habitation is not me saying that. I mean, this was like an official designation um, for these places here. Right. So you shouldn't live there. And yet. Trying to get someone to change that um, is extremely difficult, bordering on impossible, it seems. Yeah, no plumbing, no electricity, you know, just really, just, uh, just really horrible conditions. Um, and for a grant, I know um, Athens, the Athens Planning Commission recently approved some rental expansion, allowing for more rentals in an already packed college town. I can say that because I just had a child graduate from UGA <laughs> last May, and finding housing was almost impossible. But, but what sort of impact with, um, is that all having on Athens-Clark County? 
Well, it kind of remains to be seen. What we're talking about here are accessory dwelling units or ADUs, sort of a detached cottage. And our, our planning commission did give those the go-ahead. Where it is right now is it's stuck in the mayor and commission for a final approval. It came up late last year, and I think that most of the community thought this thing was going to sail through, and instead they postponed a vote pretty much indefinitely because the commissioners couldn't get together on whether these should be limited to one bedroom or two bedrooms, these accessory dwelling units. Um, it's a big part of fixing the housing stock problem in Athens. We need workforce housing uh, that's affordable for people making around or under the median income. So one thing that I'm curious about is whether there's because we have three new commissioners since that vote came up i'm really wondering and and have not really been able to suss this out do they have the political will to push this thing through again so right now it's just kind of sitting in limbo yeah talk about these accessory dwelling units i found them fascinating not full apartments really yeah, so basically uh, you can think about them as uh, they would need to be detached. You could only have one on your on your pro uh, property, one in your yard, you know, next to your house. And what we're talking about here are basically like it's like a guest cottage. It's like, um, you know, uh, a mom apartment um, that can be rented out to people. And by the way, that goes kind of hand in hand with something else that they've been working on, which is a way to control what they call short-term rentals, things like Airbnb and Verbo, which is also kind of dipping into the housing stock here in the county. Yeah. A lot of the talk down at the Capitol this session has been about the workforce issues, especially with these big companies coming in, trying to find stuff. And, and Maya, I know that that um, it is just... it. it touches everything. I don't know if we've at the Capitol in the last few years had as much talk from the leadership about housing issues as we've had this year. Yeah, definitely. You know, it hasn't been a topic that was front of mind for a lot of folks in the Republican leadership. I think, you know, a couple of uh, investigative pieces that have come out recently are, you know, lighting a fire under some people. Um, but they definitely think, um, you know, they definitely think that they're some people definitely think that there are things that need to be done. You know, we have legislation from Casey Carpenter regarding, you know, some of these more dangerous homes and, and dilapidated rental units um, that's supported by Speaker Burns. So we'll see how serious folks take this um, and, and how much steam they get going forward. Okay. So we're, we've talked about a lot about housing. We're going to keep an eye on a lot of this that's taking place. And I want to thank all of you guys for your reporting and continuing to report on this issue. But we're going to go ahead and get our final break in a little early. Uh, okay. So I'm told that we were, are not going to get it in quite yet. So we're going to continue a little bit with more on Political Rewind, but switch gears a little bit. Uh, we've got some environmental stories that I want to talk about. Um, I, you know, up in Ohio, in Palestine, Ohio, we had that trail, train derailment in, that, in East Palestine, Ohio. A lot more um, interest about what's going on with health concerns and all. I actually have family in Cincinnati worried about what's going on with the Ohio River 
with some of that, um, some of what happened uh, up in northern Ohio coming down into the Cincinnati area. So it's a big concern. But we have our own issues down here in Georgia. And, Margaret, the current is reporting on a Glenn County study being run by Emory University researchers, and they're interested in the levels of chemicals in residents' blood. So give us a little background on that. Yeah, well, um, Brunswick and Glen County are home to four separate Superfund sites, and those are basically toxic former industrial sites that uh, have a legacy of, of chemical and other industrial pollutions. They've been registered as, as these toxic wastelands um, by the federal government. Um, companies and a variety of stakeholders are supposed to be doing the cleanup. But up until now, and you know, there's been an entire generation that's gone by, and residents of Brunswick who live around these Superfund sites, nobody has actually ever tested them as human beings to see how what the effects are of their health and their bodies are um, by having, you know, having grown up um, around around these places. And so Emory University researchers are, are kicking off a study um, to, to try and start a baseline to see what sort of, of legacy toxins um, exist in people's um, in people's own bodies, you know, what sort of medical difficulties um, have arisen for, for them. And um, again, for people who've never visited Brunswick, it's a majority minority town. It's a majority black population. Most of the Superfund sites are around poorer neighborhoods, which won't surprise us all to learn are also majority minority neighborhoods. And so there's a, a wealth of inequalities and um, inequity that have to be addressed. And the Emory study is is hoping to both, you know, start measuring um, damage in people's health and health outcomes, as well as as what uh, needs to be done in order to improve standards of living um, in Brunswick and Glen County as a result. Do you think that the, um, the, the residents in the area are ready for this? Are they going to be willing? Anytime these kind of studies come, come up, we always hear about people who are reluctant to get involved. Yeah, it's. It, I think that um, the you know people that I know in Brunswick, you know, it's a very tight knit community actually, and you know, there's a lot of community leaders who who want um, improved lives uh, for their neighbors. So I think that there's going to be a great amount of of community outreach um, to help people sign up for this study. It's a, it's very simple. It's uh, there's going to be uh, at this stage at least uh, the researchers are looking for blood samples. So it's not very invasive. It's not very complex. Um, and I, there's, I think there's going to be a great turnout enough to help get this going. And for people listening in Glen County and Brunswick, you do get a $50 gift card to Walmart if you take part. So if anybody um, needs that help, uh, I think you can come to our site. Again, it's thecurrentga.org. You can see our story and learn how more about, about the study. You can also go to um, your local commissioner, Alan Booker. He's, he's also uh, uh, been a great proponent of getting this, um, getting this study underway. Yeah, well, let's hope this leads to something uh, really good in terms of help for the people who may have some issues down there. Well, we're going to get to that final break right now. So stick around. We'll be back with more Political Rewind. We're back with more Political Rewind. 
Um, Grant, I'm going to come to you now. We're going to follow you. There's a story you've been following in Georgia, and we've actually been talking about it at the legislature for a few years. Nothing done on it. And it's dealing with Georgia Power's coal ash deposits. And federal authorities have been in conflict with the company. And now it looks like federal action in Ohio may actually prompt some action here. So catch us catch us up on the story a little bit. Sure. The the EPA uh, within the last year or so um, reiterated what's well, really a longstanding rule, but they just sort of flexed their muscle and said they're going to uh, enforce it again. Uh, that says that this coal ash, which is the stuff that's left over when you burn coal to heat up water to make steam to make electricity, that coal ash cannot be stored in a in a way that leaves it in contact with groundwater. Uh, that matters in rural Georgia and a lot of places because. People drink groundwater. It's well water, right? It's it's what they get at their tap. Um, as you said, Donna, in Ohio, they've already told the utility there they can they can no longer put new coal ash in a coal ash pond next to a power plant because of this rule. Um, there was another state. Uh, I'm going to get in the weeds if I try to name it, but they've done this twice now. Uh, meanwhile, here in Georgia, um, probably this spring or summer, we should see. Um, a decision on Georgia Power's request at Plant Shearer, which is at one time it was the largest coal-fired power plant um, in the country, maybe North America, largest CO2 point source on the continent. Uh, they have a request out with Georgia EPD to cap the, the coal ash pond there and leave the bottom of it unlined. Uh, and we know from documents in this process of, of getting this permit going, we know that that coal ash is submerged in part in, in the groundwater there. And people do drink that groundwater at their wells in Juliet. Increasingly, that's less true because city water is being run out to these folks um, still. That's not done yet. But, but that permit, um, that's kind of the bellwether. There's maybe four or five other sites across the state um, where this cap in place thing is what Georgia Power is pursuing. Uh, but Shearer is the biggest one. And as I say, it's sort of the bellwether. When Depending on which way that goes, we'll, we'll know about the others. And the other wrinkle, the EPA also has demanded that all of these requests to our state regulators uh, that the EPA should be able to review them first. And so that process is ongoing. I don't have, I have no idea how that's going. But again, with their um, rule that says this stuff can't be with groundwater, you know, you can make some inferences that that maybe these these draft permits are, are really being scrutinized at the federal level before state regulators are going to be allowed to sign off on them. Yeah. So it's unbelievable that they would make there. So they're talking about keeping it unlined even though they, there's the possibility that, that, that something is already in there and the people in Juliet are still drinking the water. Right. Um, there is disbelief in Juliet, I can say. Uh, the echo is yours. Um, so Georgia Power has long said um, that they're polluting within legal limits. They're monitoring wells uh, across that aquifer where they can sort of Think of the dipstick in your car, you know, where you can check your oil level. That's how these monitoring wells are. They sort of go down into the into the aquifer and they can take water samples and see how many parts per billion of these suspect chemicals are, are in the aquifer. Um, and they publish that data periodically. The problem here is that, you know, it, it would run probably into the billions of dollars um, should Georgia Power not cap in place? Should they excavate, line the bottom of the ponds, and put the stuff back in and then cap it? It would be very, very expensive. And Georgia Power is a publicly traded company that has to pay dividends to shareholders. 
Uh, there's some pretty clear reasons why they don't want to do that. Um, but that's that's the state of the conflict here. But as I said, this year is probably where we'll see whether or not uh, cap in place is going to be the way they go. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if it was last year or the year before that the uh, people in Juliet took buses. They came up to the Capitol. Brought, it brought water. Yeah, it was actually. Yeah, it was before the pandemic or, yeah. or right at the start of it, believe it or not. It's, it's been a long time. Um, yeah, back then there were bills in the in the General Assembly that would have mandated the stuff be treated, as they said back then, as stringently as the banana peel you throw in the garbage, right? Like when you when you throw your household garbage uh, out, it goes to a lined landfill, right, where all the material in that landfill is kept out of groundwater. And they were asking for parity uh, between coal ash and household garbage back then. Uh, it's been years ago. I don't, Maya, you can correct me if you've seen any of those bills this year. I don't think there's anything like that now. I haven't. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's, that was sort of the end of that effort. Uh, I've heard rumblings that maybe there might be something dropped, but it's, it's so late in the game. I can't see it happening now. There's a lot coming um, out late in the game, yeah. though. <laughs> a lot of bills coming out. <laughs> well, yeah, and I'm the, I, for, yeah, don't let me talk about what happened at the Gold Dome. I'm the last one to know. So y- y'all are the experts on that. Yeah, all right. So, yeah, we do, we are having a lot of bills coming out late. Um, Maya, can you bring us up to date on anything you think is, uh, you know, we, we still may see come out or something that's come out this week that uh, might be interesting for our viewers, whether it deals with environmental issues or not? Yeah, so, you know, my focus at the Capitol a lot of times is on social issues. And I had a piece earlier this week um, talking about how at the beginning of the session, uh, Republican leaders were saying, oh, it's going to be a calm session. We're going to focus on kitchen table issues. And, you know, we're not we we have no interest in, you know, legislating social issues. And then within the past two weeks, we've seen like this influx of all of these polarizing hot button issues, such as, you know, regulating um, transgender care for youth, um, religious freedom. Um, We had an abortion bill filed early. Was it? Days are confusing. It was either earlier this week or last week. Um, And, you know, so all of these hot button issues are are coming up, you know, the transgender. So we had a couple versions of transgender bills. There was one that was um, very restrictive for healthcare providers, one that was a little bit less restrictive, got out of committee um, two days ago. Um, and so, and and it had the support of the Republican uh, doctors in the, in the Senate. So, you know, again, we'll, we'll probably see this make it out of the Senate. And, and then it just becomes a question of what happens, um, what happens when it makes it over to the house. So just lots of, and and then last night, just because this was in the jolt today, I wrote this for the jolt today. You know, last night we had um, the Senate Judiciary Committee debating a bill that would create an oversight commission for prosecutors. And we had um, Fannie Willis from Fulton County come in and basically say, like, we don't need this. You know, the the voters are my oversight. The state bar is my oversight. Um and it got a little bit heated. You can check out the jolt and see a little bit of what happened. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely a lot of like polarizing issues that leaders promised we wouldn't be focusing on. And yet every year they come back. 
Yeah. And a lot of it coming out of the Senate. And the the big question is what's going to happen when it goes into the House and how the new leadership under Speaker Burns will handle a lot of this. Uh, so we'll we'll see what happens with that. Uh, Martin, I wanted to ask you, are, are you paying attention? What are you paying attention to for your area, for the Athens area that's going on at the Capitol? Well, there's a couple of things. And one of them is the prosecutorial oversight that we were just talking about. Um, there are some rumblings here that that's a bill targeted at least in part at our local district attorney, Deborah Gonzalez, um, who who happens to be uh, the first uh, Latina elected DA in Georgia. She is not super popular in Atlanta, um, and her office has had some some problems lately. So she, we talked to her uh, just a couple of weeks ago about this bill, which I think is co-sponsored by at least one of our state representatives here in uh, the Athens area. She called it not an, not oversight, but an overstep uh, and echoed a lot of the things that, that Fonnie Willis uh, has said recently as well. It's just something that she feels is a direct attack on how she's running her office basically. Um, Another thing that we're watching, and I don't have a bill number in front of me right now, but there was a bill that was dropped recently uh, in the House that would essentially bar local governments from being able to enforce certain design standards in terms of building new housing back to this housing thing, right? Um, Things like the number of bedrooms, the size of your porch, um, and this bill would seem to make it so that a local government couldn't enforce some of their own design standards as far as building new stuff goes. Um, If that gets any traction, um, there are going to be a lot of people in Athens who are going to be incredibly upset about that. And uh, I'm actually planning later today on reaching out to one of our historic preservation people and kind of taking his temperature on this. Yeah. So we're, we're talking not just for your area. This would be statewide, right? This this one would be statewide. I want to say it's like HB five twelve or five seventeen, something like that. Okay. Is that the workforce housing bill? That that's an idea that's wrapped up with this workforce housing thing, right? That that the state would impose zoning uh, and building regulations uh, in the name of creating this workforce housing. Do I get I that right, Maya? So. Yeah, that may be it. Margaret, you were you wanted to add something. <laughs> Yeah, you know, workforce housing is is huge um, in in my part of Georgia right now because of the new Hyundai plant and all of the industrial building that's going on um, in neighboring Bryan County. And I know that real estate developers here are anxious to expand, uh, right, and start putting up new subdivisions for an influx of new workers, also to build affordable homes for um, the the legions of people in Chatham County and, and across the coast who who need. Um, who need low, um, you know, sort of starter homes for young families. And one of their big complaints is the amount of costs that it takes right now to build those homes because of inflation, because of this post-COVID structural um, structural inequality uh, um, system that we're in for the time being. But there's also, I think, a bit of, of um, pushback against uh, um, progressive 
um, progressive designers who want to build in um, sustainable sort of sustainable solutions to long term problems, whether that is, you know, upgrading um, switches or appliances or the kind of siting that that you can use on 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 new homes in order to help protect the environment. Of course, those things come with a cost point and developers know that you if you have to put in uh, more money to build a home, you're going to have less profit at the end of the day. So there's definitely a tug of war between what needs to be done, which is create supply for for young um, for young families and affordable homes and what it costs to protect our environment. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with a lot of that uh, coming up. So we'll we'll keep an eye on it. I, I want to um, spend a few minutes and Grant, I'm, I'm going to come back to you and and ask you a little bit more about what's what's happening in planes and, and what to expect Um what can you tell us about the atmosphere down there since you've been there? Uh, well, uh, it's we're sort of in a holding pattern, right? Uh, I spent President's Day there, and I can say that was really, really nice. <laughs> um, talking about Carter and his legacy uh uh, and on that day, in the context of President's Day, when we think about president, what we when we think about what presidents do and have done, uh, it was that was a good trip. And and now I think we're at the holding phase, uh, just sort of watching what's what's going to happen. Um, I get the sense that people who live there uh, might need a break <laughs> <laughs> from all of us. All of us in journalism, they they might need to to take a breather. Um, you know, yeah, but uh. Yeah, things are quiet, and I and and I've seen some of the, some of the stories that are floating around different news outlets today and yesterday. Are are these more um, taking the time to appraise the 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 career stories? Uh, right. Saw a great thing about guinea worm from NPR yesterday and guinea worm eradication. So I think you know if if the, if that's what you're if you're wondering what to do now, I think it's like maybe seek out some of these pieces and and spend a little time just kind of ruminating on on exactly what he is, what he has done and and what the legacy is and how it's probably affected your life in ways that that you don't know. A story that I'm anxious for people to hear that we're going to run one of these days is there's a beautiful place west of here between here and Macon called Spruill Bluff. And it exists today because of Jimmy Carter. Right. Uh, It might have gone away. And that's a story I can't wait for people to hear. But um, yeah. So. I think that's the mood. We'll be, wait- uh, we'll be waiting to hear it. Reflective. <laughs> I like that. I like that. We'll be waiting for your story. Yeah. Maya, you went down there briefly, right? At least one day, I know. Yeah, I was there uh, like 28 hours between Sunday and Monday and then had to rush back here for the legislature on Tuesday. And, and you know, everything Grant was saying, I'm 100 um, percent. I do. I feel... I don't know. I'm an empath. And so I'm just like, I'm so sorry that there's so many of us here. I know this is probably a lot for you. Um, you know, so I kind of went into every interview like that. Um, I also feel a little bit better because, you know, folks on this on this panel here, we're, we're local. So at least we don't only go down there when this happens. You know, we've been down there a lot, especially the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, but yeah, you know, there were definitely points in time where there I saw more reporters than I saw people who actually live there. Um, and we were all interviewing the same people and telling the same stories, but you know, um, you know, it's the same thing. It was very reflective. People love telling stories about Jimmy Carter, their eyes light up. Um, and then there is that undercurrent of sadness knowing that, you know, these are probably, um, some of his last days. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much. I I appreciate that. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a big story. It's something we have to cover. It's local for us. And so that's why we're down there. So, um, so thank you uh, all for being here to talk about so much today. Uh, but that's all the time we have for Political Rewind. I'd like to thank Margaret Coker, Maya Prabhu, Martin Matheny, and colleague Grant Blankenship. I'd also like to thank the producers, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, and engineer Jay Cook. I'm Donna Lowry. Thanks for joining us today and come back tomorrow for a new episode. Well, actually Monday for a new episode of Political Rewind. (laughs) 